Hello, and thanks for listening to Verse by Verse with Clinton DeFrance. Other than the crucifixion and resurrection, the day of Pentecost is likely the most important day in Christian history. But what really happened that day in Jerusalem, and how did it change the world forever? Find out next as we study Acts 2, verses 1 through 21. Today we're reading in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 21. Acts 2, beginning in verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the multitude came together and were confused, because everyone heard them speak in his own language." Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, Look, are not all these who speak Galileans? And how is it that we hear each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya adjoining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. So they were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? Others, mocking, said, They are full of new wine. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, raised his voice and said to them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and heed my words. For these are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God, that I will pour out of my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. In our last study, we considered the prophetic background in the Old Testament and in the preaching of John the Immerser and Jesus of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. We learned that the baptism in the Spirit and in fire are two earthly events intended to signal something about the kingdom of Christ. The baptism in the Holy Spirit would signal the establishment or inauguration of the kingdom. It would prove that Christ was reigning in heaven 
and the baptism in fire, the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple, would signify the total removal of ethnic Israel as the people of God on earth. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 5, Jesus told the apostles that they were going to experience the former. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Then Jesus was taken up into heaven. And as he had instructed the apostles, they waited in Jerusalem for the baptism and the power to come. Now, Acts chapter 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. A Pentecost was the fourth of the eight holy days discussed in Leviticus chapter 23. In Leviticus 23, 11, the Bible says, On the day after the Passover Sabbath was the Feast of Firstfruits. On this day was a wave offering where a sheaf of barley, the firstfruits of the harvest, was waved ceremoniously before the Lord. And then a lamb was sacrificed as well as a grain and a drink offering. Fifty days after the Feast of Firstfruits came the Feast of Weeks, which later Jews called Pentecost, meaning 50th in Greek. They would count off seven weeks, or 49 days, and on the day after the last Sabbath, they would observe Pentecost. Of course, that meant Pentecost was always on the first day of the week, because it always followed a weekly Sabbath, the day after a weekly Sabbath. On Pentecost, they would take the first fruits and bake two loaves of barley, to be offered as a wave offering, and then they would offer several animal sacrifices and grain and drink offerings. And although much of this may seem foreign and strange to us, these feasts were celebrations of praise to God for the harvest on which the land would live that year. And they were very precious to an agrarian society. The Feast of First Fruits related to God's provision of the blessings and anticipated a later harvest. The Feast of Weeks related to the participation in and enjoyment of what God had provided when the harvest came. But these two feasts of thanksgiving for agricultural blessings, celebrated hundreds of times throughout the history of Israel, foreshadowed and pictured two of the great salvation history events of the New Testament, which actually took place on these respective calendar days. The Feast of First Fruits was a picture of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the resurrection, Jesus is called the first fruits of them that have fallen asleep in death, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 20. And Paul says the resurrection of Christ provided the spiritual blessings of salvation and hope for those who believe on Jesus, Romans chapter 4 verse 25, 1 Corinthians 15 verse 22. The resurrection of Christ promised and anticipated salvation to follow, and Jesus was raised on the day of firstfruits, Sunday after the Passover Sabbath, Mark 16, verses 1 and 9. Fifty days after Jesus' resurrection, on the day of Pentecost, the gospel came to man in all its fullness and fulfillment, and humanity was able to participate in and enjoy the spiritual blessings provided through the work of Christ, and it all fits together perfectly because it's God's plan. So when Luke announces that it was the day of Pentecost, 
that was prophetically meaningful. In keeping with Jesus' instruction, they were all together in one place, apparently in a house, according to verse 2. And according to many scholars, it may have been a room in the wall of the temple where they were waiting. Verse 2 says, And suddenly there came a sound from heaven, as of a rushing mighty wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Here are the three sensory elements of the baptism in the Holy Spirit which make it a sign. And I want to stress that idea. A sign is only a sign if it is sensible. You have to be able to see it or smell it or taste it or touch it or hear it, physically feel it or some combination of these. In the baptism of the Holy Spirit, we have something that was both heard and seen. First, there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind. The language indicates that there wasn't any actual wind, they didn't feel it, and it didn't blow their hats off or their papers away, but they heard it, the noise without anything perceptible generating it. Professor Gareth Reese says that the words literally mean as a violent blast borne along. To the ancients, this would have been an easy connection with the Holy Spirit, for the word spirit, wind, and breath are related and often interchangeable. And the work of the Spirit throughout the Bible is often described in terms of wind and breath, as in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, Ezekiel chapter 37 and verse 9, and other places as well. The Bible says that the noise filled the whole house where they were sitting, which seems to refer to deafening volume. Second, there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire, and one sat upon each of them. The New American Standard Version says tongues as of fire distributing themselves or being distributed. Gareth Reese says that our mental picture probably should be of one great flame seen first by the apostles and the others gathered in the temple area and then splitting up and apart going to each of the apostles and resting on their heads. Like the Holy Spirit descending and resting on Jesus in the form of a dove, this was not a permanent display, but momentary, to visually symbolize that the Spirit of God had done some work on these men. What the work was became immediately evident. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. This is the third sensory element of Holy Spirit baptism. The statement they were all filled with the Holy Spirit explains why this is called a baptism metaphorically. The Holy Spirit is not a substance like water in which a person could be immersed, and later in the chapter when God uses another figure, uh, he says that Christ poured out the Spirit. That does not mean that baptism is affected by pouring. In this case, baptism is a metaphor for an overwhelming influence. The Spirit of God took control of the faculties of these men in such an extreme way that without knowing a language, they were able to speak it fluently. Speaking in tongues never means anything else but human languages in the Bible, as we'll see in just a moment. 
But why did God choose to signal the coming of Christ's kingdom by enabling these men to speak different languages? McGarvey suggests that this was to uh, exhibit the miraculous mental endowments to prove that God was revealing heavenly truths through these men as his representatives. I think that certainly could be, but I suggest another reason also. In just a moment, we'll learn that these languages embodied every nation under heaven, and the gospel is here being proclaimed in all of them. In Mark chapter 16, verse 15, and Matthew 26, 28, Jesus had instructed that his message would be preached to every creature from all nations in all the world. And here is a heavenly signal of the literalism of that instruction. Jesus intended that we English speakers become his disciples, and he made it possible for the gospel to be translated and understood in a language which Jesus himself never spoke while he was on this earth. Verse 5 continues, And there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. This phenomenon, a convocation of men from across the world in Jerusalem, was necessary for the fulfillment of prophecies about the establishment of the kingdom, particularly Isaiah chapter 2, verses 2 through 4. But as improbable as it might seem that such a thing would happen, God had made provision for it centuries earlier in the law of Moses. In Deuteronomy 16, verse 16, the law says three times a year, all your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place which he chooses, at the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Weeks or Pentecost, and at the Feast of Tabernacles. The place which he chose was Jerusalem when the temple was built there. And after the dispersion of the Jews in the Assyrian and Babylonian captivities, that meant that people would be traveling in from essentially every nation under heaven, as the world was then understood by people at that time. Verse 6 says, And when this sound occurred... Now, this is a different word than sound in verse 2, so many people think it refers to the tongue speaking rather than the noise of the wind, but it is possible it refers to both of them and the general commotion the two events caused. The multitude came together, and they were confused because everyone heard them speak in his own language. Language here is the same word translated tongue elsewhere. This is what tongue speaking was, speaking human languages. Sometimes people suppose that this was a miracle on the ear of the hearers instead of on the tongue of the speakers, but the whole telling of the event makes it clear that the apostles were in fact speaking languages unknown to themselves, but known to some in their audience. Then they were all amazed and marveled, saying to one another, look, are not all these who speak Galileans? Galileans were notoriously uneducated people, as we see in Acts chapter 4 and verse 13. And how is it that we hear, each in our own language in which we were born, Parthians and Medes and Elamites, those dwelling in Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya joining Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them speaking in our own tongues the wonderful works of God. Remember all these nations. 
Through the work done on this singular occasion, the kingdom of God was able to spread throughout most of the empire as these men were able to learn of Jesus Christ and carry that knowledge back to their respective homelands in due time. The reason that they would have been confused and amazed and marveled to hear their own languages being spoken at first is that on holy occasions such as this, when the Jews were gathering in Jerusalem for the feasts, they did not speak the Gentile languages of the places to which they were located, but only Hebrew or Aramaic. In fact, there were some groups that considered it unlawful and blasphemous to speak anything but Hebrew and Aramaic during these periods. Verse 12, so they were all amazed and perplexed. Now, not simply because of hearing Gentile languages at the feast, but because the speakers were people who shouldn't have known the languages to begin with, and the things they spoke were the wonderful works of God. And they were saying to one another, look, whatever could this mean? This question can also be translated, what will become of this? Or what will this be? And it seems to show that this portion of the crowd perceived that something miraculous was going on and that it credentialed the speakers as worthy of serious consideration. However, there was another response from the crowd that's a little strange and difficult at first. Others mocking said, they are full of new wine. Why would anyone accuse the apostles of being drunk on this occasion? Modern sensational religionists who practice ecstatic worship and associate jumping and dancing and convulsions and rolling around on the floor as evidence of the Holy Spirit's influence will sometimes rush to this passage as a proof text for their behavior. But I think we need to emphasize that no such behavior has even been indicated in the scripture thus far. Isn't it interesting that what the Bible calls baptism in the Holy Spirit the sound of wind, the appearance of fire dividing into tongues and resting on the heads of many, and the ability to speak actual foreign languages without knowing or studying them, none of these things ever happen in modern situations where we are told that people are getting baptized in the Holy Spirit. But what does happen, uncontrolled laughter, running, dancing, falling on the ground in convulsions, nonsensical babbling, screaming, none of that happened when we read about the Holy Spirit baptism in the Bible. Evidently, these people who accused the apostles of being drunk were simply not speakers of the Gentile languages and mistook them when coming from their unlearned Galilean neighbors as the incoherent rambling of a drunk person. But Peter, the Bible says, standing up with the eleven, why Peter? Not because he was the prince of the apostles, but because the time has come to open the doors of the kingdom of heaven. And in accordance with Jesus' promise to him, Peter was given the keys, Matthew 16 and verse 19. It was his privilege to preach the first gospel sermon and witness the sign of Christ's kingdom being granted to both Jews and Gentiles. And here it is offered first to the Jew. He raised his voice and said to them, men of Judea, and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Here we gather we're correct that the accusers were locals who didn't know the languages. Now he's speaking in a language that they and all the others would understand. Let this be known to you and heed my words, for these are not drunk, as you suppose, 
since it's only the third hour of the day. This is a sarcastic answer. Peter is not supposing or implying that the apostles would have been drunk later that day, but he's chiding the audience for being so irreverent in the face of a miraculous demonstration of God's Spirit. And now begins the great explanation of the event that just transpired. Verse 16, But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. This is that. There's something wonderful about connecting an event or a teaching or a practice with the Word of God. Everything in our religion ought to be such that if God has spoken about it, we can point to a scripture and say, this is that. But this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. The original citation comes from what we would call Joel chapter 2, verses 28 through 32. And it shall come to pass in the last days, says God. Note that Peter affirms Joel was speaking the word of God. And he says that God had given a predictive prophecy through Joel of something that would happen in the last days. The original, as we have it in Hebrew, says afterward, which according to most scholars means after the return from captivity. Peter says the last days, which I understand is a reference to the Christian era, during which time Jesus is reigning over his earthly kingdom from heaven. You can see this language in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, and 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 23 through 28. Through Joel, God said that I will pour out of my spirit on all flesh, or all mankind. But history and present experience shows that God did not mean every human being, because the evidences of this outpouring would be miraculous and these miracles are simply not performed or experienced by every person, and they never were. Paul explains that even in the first century, not all Christians were miracle workers. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 8 through 11 and 29 through 30. So this means something other than everybody. The events in Acts chapter 10, when the baptism in the Holy Spirit is experienced by Gentiles, lead us to the conclusion that God meant both Jews and Gentiles, when he said, all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your young men shall see visions. Your old men shall dream dreams. And on my men servants and on my maid servants, I will pour out of my spirit in those days, and they shall prophesy. This language is what Bible scholars call apocalyptic. And we shouldn't take it literally and look for specific cases of these things happening either in Acts 2 or in subsequent years. The language is simply a prediction that when the kingdom of God was established on earth, it would be marked by a restoration of the prophetic office and a large demonstration of miraculous works. This is certainly fulfilled in the early history of the church. Jesus also prophesied that miraculous manifestations of the Spirit were going to follow the believers during the apostles' ministry and confirm the heavenly origin of the things they were preaching. Mark chapter 16, verses 17 through 19 says, And these signs will follow those who believe. In my name they will cast out demons, they will speak with new tongues, they will take up serpents, 
and if they drink anything deadly, it will by no means hurt them. They will lay hands on the sick, and they will recover. Verses 19 through 20 summarize how that was fulfilled in the history of the early church, beginning on the day of Pentecost. So then, after the Lord had spoken to them, he was received up into heaven and set down at the right hand of God. And they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. Then Joel's words shift from the jubilant prediction of miracles and wonders to a dreadful and ominous message we've heard before when Jesus was predicting the destruction of Jerusalem. I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the coming of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Remember from our previous study that all of these expressions are common in Old Testament prophecy to describe the judgment of God against earthly nations. As John declared in Matthew chapter 3 that the Messiah would come to Israel to clean house, to separate the good from the bad, he would come with blessing, the baptism in the Holy Spirit that marked the inauguration of his kingdom, and with curses, the baptism in fire, the destruction of Jerusalem that marked the absolute and final rejection of ethnic Israel as the special people of God. So here, Peter echoes the same message through the words of Joel. Pentecost marked the blessing time, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But there was another baptism coming when fire and judgment would be poured out on those who had rejected God's offers of deliverance. In verse 21, Joel's prophecy closes with this awesome announcement, which became a summary of the gospel message in later apostolic preaching. And it shall come to pass that whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. The ultimate blessing of God in Christ, that which was signaled and marked by the amazing things that happened that day, was not miracles or prophecies, but salvation from sin and restoration to good favor with the God of heaven to be offered to all men in all the world. Before concluding, it should be noted that the baptism in the Holy Spirit, while a specific event and very special in its purpose and explanation, has had a lasting effect in this world. When God poured out his Spirit, the Spirit became a present and active influence in this world through and in the church of Jesus Christ. Since that time, the Spirit has done several distinct and wonderful works. We're going to encounter many of these as we read and study through the rest of this volume and through other writings in the New Testament. And even though certain works of the Spirit were temporary, and after accomplishing their purposes, they ceased in this world, the Spirit of God took up residency in the Church of Christ on that day, and since then has not ceased to dwell among and to influence the Lord's people for good. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the Scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. 
It is part of the Growing Biblical Studies program of Tulsa. To learn more, visit our website, bspoftulsa.com. When we walk with the Lord, when we walk with the Lord, in the light of His Word, in the light of His Word, what a glory He sheds on our way, sheds on our way, while we do His good will, while we do His good will, He abides with us still, He abides with us still, and with all who will trust and obey. Peace.